everybody. Welcome back to the Green Malkin Lane podcast, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Uh, we are taking a break from format today to interview a incredible writer uh, and a reporter uh, named Linda Fight, And I'm joined by my friend, Noelle Reed. Hello, Noelle. Hello. And hello, Linda. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Uh, Now, Linda's not a name that many people would know unless they are familiar with the early days of Marvel. But she has a surprising number of connections to a lot of our favorite characters and our favorite creators. Uh, And uh, although I don't know how you feel hearing this, Linda, I think you're aware you were the first published writer for Marvel uh, ever in their history, correct? Female, see, um, that's that Annie Nocenti pointed that out to me. She said, you know, you're a first. I was the first born in my family, but a first what? And she told me, you're the first published female writer for Marvel, uh, you know, that got credits. I guess maybe people wrote before, but weren't credited. Uh, we are interviewing Annie next week. So oh I'm, great! I'm great. You know she lives that. in she lives in my county here in New York in oh, the Mid Hudson. Are you two yeah, good friends? And, yeah, I would. I don't know how we get along very well. I love her. She likes me. We get along. We keep talking about having that beer on her front porch and look at the creek. But yeah, I mean, good <laughs> friends are people you see a lot and call a lot. So. She's a good friend, but not a good, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, totally understood. All positive on, I've got a total positive vibe on Annie. 100% positive. I think she's just incredible. Now, in every way, in every way. We've been chatting for a few weeks, and I know you were a little hesitant to sit down and talk today, but I'm so honored to sit down and meet you. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. This tickles me, Chad. This is amusing. But Amusing why? Well, you know. I don't know. I, you know, my dear friend Flo Steinberg. Now that was a very dear friend. You know, Flo Steinberg, the late great Flo Steinberg. You know, as she got older, because she was maybe six or seven years older than I. But as she got older, and she'd been out of Marvel for a long time since maybe 1970, 69. So she said, "Why do these people keep wanting to talk to me?" They ask me the same questions over and over again. How was Stan to work for? So there's a little bit of that, like, you know, and I think, Chad, to be honest, I think it's because I'm, you know, I'm old and I'm going to, we're all going to croak this whole Bronze Age generation. And it's like, get them while they can still talk and put a sentence together. So I was hesitant because I have been interviewed before. And although I'm, enough of, of an egoist to enjoy talking to you about me anytime, but um, it does seem like maybe a paper tiger, you know, or a wet paper bag or something. Oh my God. I like you so much already. <laughs> <laughs> I like you too. Noel. I like you too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's so, a friendly bunch. So giving a little bit of context to our listeners. And, and one of the things we talk about quite frequently on the podcast is there's different generations of, if let's just say X-Men readers, but comic readers. If mm. we focus on the X-Men specifically, we have the people who read in the 60s and 70s. We have the people who came on board in the Claremont era, which is what made them so famous. And those people are now in their 50s or 60s, <laughs> right? 
And then we have kind of the younger generation who are now in their 20s and 30s who got to know the X-Men through the cartoons and through the movies. And one of the things we're trying to do with this podcast is show people, even if you're only familiar with the more modern versions of the X-Men, they have their roots back in the 60s, uh, which is when Marvel was kind of budding uh, with uh, all of the ideas that Stan and Jack and Steve and everyone were throwing out so consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, we are we are in the kind of 1968 era of X-Men right now, which uh, where your name first came to my attention is in the backup feature of X-Men number 57. We saw uh, a five-page backup devoted to each of the characters kind of exploring their origins. So we saw several devoted to Professor X and Cyclops and Iceman and Angel and Beast. And then they're like, oh, yeah, Gene. And (laughs) (laughs) you got it, (laughs) Jeff. Tell us, so so I know uh, we've, we've interviewed Roy Thomas, and he actually brought up your name when we talked to him as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the backup feature you did for uh, X-Men number 57, if you recall, and the five-page feature you did for Marvel Girl. I've read it. <laughs> I mean, I've read it recently, but you understand that was a long, sure. long time ago. So I can't remember the genesis per, you know, exactly. I probably, Roy said, we needed you to write an eight-page thing. And, uh, and, and he gave me free reign. and. Uh, Werner Roth illustrated that, right? Just beautiful job. And I had fun with it because what I liked about Marvel was it's real comic booky. You know, this was before people got real serious about comics. Stan was getting a little serious with his Shakespearean blah, blah with Thor and all, but mostly it was fun. You know, it was still fun times. And so I got to do some silliness like her carving the, the crust off the pie with the telekinetic powers of the knife. You know, I had fun with it and, uh, and it turned out fine and it was beautifully drawn. And I got residuals on that sucker for a long time because they kept saying, we need eight pages of filler here. Oh, you know, that story. Let's put that in there. So, yeah. Noel, have you read that five page backup? I think I did. Yeah, I just it's, read it. It's and so it, it, unfeminist. It's just pathetic, you know, like she's doing house <laughs> cleaning using her telekinetic power. But honestly, it was tongue in cheek. I was mm-hmm. definitely having fun with it. Yeah, it was. And it that's was almost, totally, yeah, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, that's totally how it feels, because that was that was Jean at that time. Like, it good, totally good. just fits the era. <laughs> I loved the X-Men, you know, it, even when I started reading Marvel in college, I loved the X-Men because it was young people in a in this school. And I thought it was a whole great premise with these freaks and Dr. Xavier. I thought that I loved those things with teenagers and stuff. I liked Superboy and I liked, you know, I liked Peter Parker was great because he had teenage problems. I still, you know, I like all those John Hughes movies too. Same problem. <laughs> I'm hung up on, you know. <laughs> You know, I, I really loved the the tongue-in-cheek nature of that Marvel Girl story. It's almost as if you're saying, look, the boys expect me to do this stuff, but look how fucking powerful I am, and I'm going to show right. you that I can do it. <laughs> I uh, don't need no hoover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those, uh, those little tongue-in-cheek moments, which I got a lot of those when I read your series, The Cat, as well. Uh, the idea of her... So if you read the first issue of The Cat, and we'll, we'll tell the origin story of that series in a moment, 
she is kind of the housewife whose husband won't let her do anything. And she's like, I'm capable. I'm a scientist. And he's like, no, no, you need to stay in your place. But then he dies and suddenly she has to rely on her own training, her own accord, her own uh, abilities to to kind of get through life. So there was more of that kind of tongue in cheek commentary. Uh, yeah, the whole thing was pretty cliched, right? I mean, it was sort of, but that was sort of what Stan and Roy said. Let's just do sort of a women's Libby story. And they let me do it. I mean, I did plot the whole thing, but um, but it was still having fun with it because it was a little over the top, you know, the, the protective cop. You know, I love you, honey. You just stay there. I'll keep you safe. But meanwhile, he's dead. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the cat, of course, has become Tigra now. Do you follow? Uh, I know. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I thought, OK, let's just sexualize this bitch, you know? I mean, <laughs> not sexy enough. What is she wearing? That little that little sash thing that's weird and then they just turn her into this <sighs> babe you know Ugh. oh well what can i tell you wally wood tried to turn her into a babe too because he liked the tatas you know but um <laughs> well what can i tell you i did my best guys <laughs> so if we take a big step backward uh you were in college in the mid-1960s and applied for a job at marvel correct i did i wrote I wrote Stan a letter because that's the only thing that interested me. I'm going to Manhattan and I want to work for Marvel. And uh, I still have the letter they sent back where he circled my letter and said where I wrote that I had a good, a decent sense of humor and that I was an English lit major and that I could type. He circled that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I guess the deal was Flo wrote me the letter and said that he'd like you to call him. And I do not remember calling him, but maybe I did and he wasn't available. But long story short, the deal was when you come to New York, come see us. We can't offer you a job sight unseen, but come see us. And um, so that's what I did. And they offered me basically a summer job helping mostly with the fan mail and doing some production work. So and it started there. And then after the summer, they said, can you stay on? We'll raise your money, which was a good thing because it was peanuts. And it was just a little office with, what, 12 or 15 people running around back then. Uh, yeah, well, when I first began, we were working it in the same office as Ma all of magazine management. So down the hall were the men's magazines and the sports magazines. And I don't even know what was down there. Everyone was smoking down there. And uh, then we moved up Madison Avenue to our own little quarters. And there were, I mean, I can tell you, it was Saul Brodsky, Flo, me, Stan. Um, they hired Herb Trimpey to run the stat machine. And Mori Kuramoto, Tony Mortolaro, John Ramita. Did I say John Verportion? Uh, now you did. <laughs> and Marie Severin. I think that was it. That was it. And um, it was cozy. There were basically one, two, three, four, five rooms, and one was a stat machine. So really, four rooms and the and the kind of entryway. We were we were tight, man. <laughs> we had fun. Why did you want to work for Marvel? I just loved the 
you know, the spirit of the thing, which Stan communicated so well with not only his writing, which was so fun. I mean, it was, you know, it was a breakthrough thing in comics, which I had read as a kid. You know, I read Little Lulu and Superman and Wonder Woman and uh, but it was a breakthrough thing. And I had a friend who was like the only hippie in North Carolina. And he was way cool. And he introduced me to Marvel. And I just loved it. I would go into town and buy them off the rack. And I thought, this would be so cool. And that's why, you know, I I was the class clown of my high school graduating class. And there's a certain part of me that just wants to do silly, weird stuff, you know. I uh, I I think this idea of a few women working in an office full of men. I mean, it was the '60s, of course. So there was kind of women have one particular type of job, men have a particular type of job. But you wanted to be not just the assistant or the fan mail responder, but the writer. Uh, what did you get your education in? And and tell me about your aspirations for writing back at the beginning. Well, I I never. I you know I'm not a I'm not an aspirative person. <laughs> I don't aspire to much. <laughs> But um, I've always been a good writer, you know, ever since I was a kid. And uh, I majored in English lit with an art minor. Oh, he circled that, too. <laughs> but he didn't understand I'm like studying Leonardo da Vinci. And I'm not anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. So my aspiration was just to work in publishing because I liked all that. I liked that uh, underachiever. That's what I am. <laughs> And publishing is not lucrative. If you want to make money, go into advertising. But anyway, um, or filmmaking. So that's all. I didn't have any aspirations. I just wanted to go to New York, get some, have some excitement, work for Stan with some fun people, and see what happened after that. You know, I I did not have a career. I wasn't driven. Never have been. But- but you made your way into Marvel. That's amazing. Well, yeah, because I, you know, I'm I'm pretty charming. <laughs> well, or pushy. Both. I'm charming and pushy, and I wrote a damn good letter. In fact, three of the jobs I've had in my life are from writing letters. That's like impressive. you should hire me. You should hire me already. You know. Yeah. What were the others? Uh, I got a job uh, at my newspaper as a columnist, and I got a job um, one summer volunteering for Ted Kennedy on Capitol Hill. Mm. Yeah. Have you been in New York ever since? I live upstate now, but um, we lived in New York for nine years. Then we moved to Cornwall, England, where Chris Claremont visited us, by the way, because he's got English roots. And then when we came back, Herb had gotten a a pilot's license in England while we were there because he loved aviation. And so when we came back, we just we had to find a place near an airport and and that we could afford. So we kept going up the Hudson, up the Hudson, crossed the river, came west till we could afford a house. And that's how we ended up here. The uh, the first published work. You are under the name L.A. Fight. Uh, Oh, was that that Western? (laughs) mm -hmm, December 1968. It's the backup story in Rawhide Kid. And you get to draw with uh, Werner Roth, or Werner Roth did your pencils, and Herb Trimpey, who became your husband. That's right. uh, What a coincidence. Uh, Tell me me about that story or how you got that and what it was like to work with Werner and Herb back in the early days. Uh, 
I think that was the first one. Was that the first thing that Roy ever gave me? Because I kept bugging him. Let me write. Let me write. Let me write. So he threw me a Western because there wasn't as high standards of performance and so forth. That's how I got it. And frankly, I never met Werner Roth ever. I, I never met him. And I don't even I don't even know if Herb was in the office yet because he had come back from Vietnam and was working from home. I'm not sure. So, I mean, I don't remember talking to him about his inking whatsoever. Nothing. But, you know. I'm, I'm shocked you never met Werner. That's interesting. Not that I recall. I met a lot of those guys, but I don't remember Werner ever coming into the office. You know, I, I met a host of them, but yeah. not... Werner, Werner being one of the most uh, prolific and early artists on the X-Men, of course, after Jack Kirby left, uh, uh, for years and years he was on uh, on those books. So we got to talk to Roy a little bit about him, but his pencils, particularly on your Marvel Girl story, are just gorgeous. Oh, he was beautiful penciler. Just love that style. You know, in comic strips, I always loved that illustrative style, like um, Apartment 3G and Mary Worth. I, I love that sort of luscious style. Yeah. But I also love Ditko. What can I tell you, you know? Yeah, let me just toss out some names at you and tell me some of your memories or or what people were like, if that's okay. Let's Steve Ditko is a great place to start. You know, I he might have come into the office, but I have no recollection. You know, he got more and more reclusive. So I didn't get into that office until midsummer 67. And I was only in the office for a year and a half. Um, and I never met Steve Ditko, but that's another thing. It's another flow story. You know, Steve got more and more reclusive. He wasn't coming out. He wasn't answering anybody, anything he was. And, and Flo got a message from someone, Steve Ditko wants to get together with you. He wants to meet with you. And I mean, this was in the two thousands and, uh, I'm thinking, whoa, for God's sakes, go find him. See what he looks like now. And she went, I don't know. Why bother? You know, so she didn't. Anyway, so I never met Steve Ditko. Who else? Uh, well, Noelle, let's take turns. Toss out some names. One of my oh, favorite things is Jack Kirby would come in, you know, and um, he was, we were smoking in the office. So sometimes he'd be smoking his cigar and one time, and he used to rock back and forth on his feet. And one time I just got behind him and I'm rocking and the whole bullpen is laughing because I'm making fun of Jack Kirby. He was a great, he was a great guy. And uh, as I said, I worked with, with Romita every day. He was, just, he was, I'm sure still is a wonderful gentleman, very respectful. I know Robin Green, you know, who, took Flo's job, I think, when she left. Um, she wrote in her Rolling Stone thing about how it was, uh, the guys were like talking dirty and and I never experienced that ever. I mean, Tony Mortellara would sometimes crack wise in a somewhat sexualized way, but it's Tony Mortellara, you know what I mean? It's wife Sicilian, what can I tell you? But everybody else was so polite and respectful to me, and as far as I could tell, to each other, one another. Uh, yeah, so yes, so, so, so <laughs> we're tone John Ramita, senior, excellent sweetheart, and um, very even tempered, very a calming presence. Marie Severin, my home, my home girl, fabulous. You know, she and I were friends. She came to my wedding um, shower. Uh, 
I Flo and I went to visit her when she was in like a assisted living out on Long Island once. We go way back. I have lots of notes from Marie and all these Marie cartoons, but I have so many of them, some of which Dewey Cassell gave us because he had them. He wrote a great book about Herb and he wrote another one about Marie Severin. And he's, I recommend his books, Dewey Cassell. Okay. Super, very thorough, very well done. So Marie was great, real fun. Um, I mean, Marie Severin's just an incredible powerhouse of a writer and an artist. Uh, that She that, could do it all. She could she's do amazing. It all. But you should get that book, honestly, Chad. It's well worth it. I think Tomorrow's publishes it. I'm not sure. Not sure. Who else? Stan, of course. Stan was a great guy. And, you know, people diss him. I never saw him be anything but um, positive, supportive. Uh, he, he, wanted, he wanted everyone to like him and be happy. So sometimes I think he, I wouldn't say fibbed, but he, you know, he didn't tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And sometimes he would run away from emotional stuff because he didn't want, he was non-confrontational, but uh, I think he was a great guy and, uh, and, and a great thing for Marvel and a great thing for comics in general. He was terrific. And he was talented. People, this is talent too. I think the man was a great writer. I mean, he was writing all those books when I started reading them and then that's what attracted me. So he must've been good. All right. I like Shakespeare. I like Stan. <laughs> was there um, like any sort of camaraderie between the women who were working in the office at the time? Just because uh, I picture it as like kind of a mad, mad men world, right? Is, did you have to find those? I don't think it was as, I don't think it was as male as mad sounds like. And it certainly yeah. wasn't like mad men because it was <laughs> a rougher bunch, comic book artists and writers First of all, we didn't see all of them, but most of them are just, they were of that generation. They were not prima donnas. They were there to work. They were craftsmen as much as artists. And um, and they were humble. And comics weren't very revered. They weren't thought highly of. So nobody had a big head about it, you know? And the, I, everyone got along. So we didn't feel the need as women to fortify ourselves or form a support group. Plus we were three different generations. Marie was old, 10 years older than Flo. Flo year, was 10 years older than I, you know, and, um, but we got along and, and sometimes we would talk about the boys behind their backs, but it was not, not much of that, you know. Yeah, well, uh, that's good to hear because like loving comics and just seeing like how women get depicted in things. That's always sort of my imagination of oh, what, what must it have been like to be a woman there. So that is actually really great to hear. Well, there was a little eye rolling, Noel, you know, every now of and then, course. like I say, when, when they would get these stupid babes, we'd just, we'd roll our eyes. But uh, because, you know, the comics, especially back then a days were pandering. They went from being for kids to being for teenage boys, you know, 14, 15 year old boys on the cusp of puberty. And so they were pandering to all that with these uh, sort of pinup girls. And I, I got it. They were trying to sell these comics with these babes on the covers, you know, but, uh, but we still rolled our eyes. Yes. <laughs> uh, tell me about Jean Thomas. Jeannie, you know, she was awesome.
But we got, you know, we saw each other socially at parties and stuff. And I like her. Then they had the Stan Lee honoring thing at uh, on Broadway a couple of years back before, right before the pandemic. And everybody was there. They they put it on CBS or ABC or something. Do you remember that? It was some sort of. I don't. Like, oh, man, no. Yeah. You know, so they had all these actors from the movies on stage and they also had Roy on stage and they had all these, but sitting behind me was Gene Thomas. And it was just, I was, I was so thrilled to see her again. And we've been in touch since then. We email and we promise that when this is pandemic's over, I'll come to the city and we'll hang out. And um, she was on a Comic-Con, you know, San Diego Comic-Con panel with Danny Fingeroff last year. So you might look for that. Okay. She and I and Roy and a couple other people. Oh, Mimi Gold, who used to be Barry's uh, Windsor Smith's girlfriend for a while and who, who also wrote a couple of comics back then, too. Anyway, that's a good panel to look up. But yeah, Jeannie's great. She's just terrific. She went on to do something else in, I think, in medical administration. I don't know, but, you know. Well, she wrote she wrote Night Nurse way back then when you were doing the cast. That's right. I, I finished one of her issues because I, mean, I don't know if their marriage was coming apart. I don't know why, but I was asked to, to fill in. She was great. Yeah. Uh, how about Joan Lee? You know, I only saw Joan Lee, the the grand dame, maybe two or three times. She'd come in, Stan. She had that English accent, you know. It's really, and but so I, I will say that uh, Joan and Stan, when Herb and I got married, they sent we we didn't have a big wedding. We didn't invite anyone to the wedding, so but they sent us a present anyway. And I know she picked it out, and it was baccarat little these little baccarat crystals. And they're still on, they're broken, of course, because I had three kids, but um, <laughs> they're on my window still. And every morning I think of Stan and Joan because it, one is a prism and, and the, you know, the rainbow comes on my kitchen cabinets. And I, every day I think Stan and Joan. Oh, she, she was, a, she was a little bit intimidating. I was a bit intimidated, but her daughter, Joni came in one day with uh, Lorna Luft. That was cool. I guess they went to high school performing arts together or something. Yeah. Oh, the the famous actress. Uh, how about Janice Cohen? I don't think I knew her. I mean, I know who she is, but I she's is she Artie Simic's daughter or is that somebody's? Anyway, I don't know her. I actually don't know if that's true or not. If so, that's fascinating. I'll look that up. Check it out. I'm not sure either. I wish we had Flo to ask because Flo kept in touch with everyone. She was really good about that. It sounds. Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to change subject. Yeah, no, you're good. Okay. I was going to say, did you mention Bill Everett yet? No, he didn't. I did meet Bill Everett a few times and everybody would make fun of Bill Everett because his work would often be late and everyone knew he was an alcoholic and he would always have these like, the dog ate my homework excuses. It was, but uh, yeah, I met him a couple of times, but I have no clear memory except that he was raggedy. You know what I mean? He was raggedy. There were no clear outlines to Bill Everett. He was a little bit of a mess, but yeah. he sure was a good artist. Yes. Uh, and then let me toss one more name out. Patty Greer. Patty, you know, Patty, she did one of the cats, right? One of those issues of the cat. 
she lived she lived about 12 miles from me it turned out she and dave cockram moved here before i did probably but i you know i had stopped working in the office before she started coming around so i didn't know her very well i just remember she was the kind of person who would always come with cookies and muffins and mugs that she had made at home of the hulk and she was and she she absolutely she didn't have to write a letter. She just brought cookies and mugs and she insinuated herself into the business and good, good for Patty. It's fascinating to me how many of the women who were working in the comics were romantically connected to the men working in the comics. <laughs> you know, that's propinquity for you. If you put two people together, you know, sparks may fly. It's, it's, I think it's the human thing to do to try to hook up. Uh, it's a weird thing. You know, yeah, and but, if we we're all together and <laughs> what year did you and her get together? 1970. Okay. And uh, I, I know you guys had three children together. Tell us a little bit about Herb Trimpey. Now, I know a lot of our X-Men fans are going to be more familiar with Herb Trimpey's name. He's the first artist that drew Wolverine as a really primary example. That's right. Oh, did you see what that page went for at the Heritage Auction, Chad? I didn't. How much? Here's a, here's a great story. You know. Herb had done, he was drawing Hulk forever, right? And he did Hulk 180, which the last panel of Hulk 180 says, and next issue, introducing the Wolverine. And there's a little drawing of the Wolverine in the lower right, you know, the last panel. And Hulk 181, somehow, we know, don't know how, the whole book, you know, they, they used to give out the books and they'd usually split them up between the artist and the, and the artists and the writer. The whole book ended up with Len Wein. And we always said, how did he get a whole book? He was just a writer. Nevertheless, the story is Hulk 181, the first book featuring Wolverine, burned up in Len Wein's garage fire. So that makes this one page of Hulk 180 with this last panel, the first ever vision of the Wolverine extremely valuable. Well, nobody knew where it was. Nobody knew where it was. Nobody knew where it was because it had gotten split up the whole book. Well, this kid who, you know, this 50 year old kid, this 45 year old kid calls up Herb and, or, or emails them or something says, I don't know if you remember me, but when I was a, a boy, I came to your house to visit you with my aunt, and you gave me a page of Hulk as I was about to leave, and it's this page. Mm. And he says, I know it's worth a lot of money, and I don't know what to do. I have plenty of money. I don't need to sell it. And um, so Herb and he, you know, Herb negotiated with him, and he hooked him up with his agent, and they hooked him up with Heritage. That page Sold for $657,000. Wow. Now, and the guy didn't take any of his cut and he, he donated a lot of it to that um, hero initiative. And then he gave her a, a chunk, which he needed at the time because he had this new marriage and this new wife and she liked to spend. And <laughs> so that was, that's the Wolverine. Yes. So tell us about Herb Trimpey back in the late 60s. Uh, what was he like? The first time I met him, he was wearing Brill Cream and he had his hair slicked back like Dracula. And I thought, who is this handsome nerd? But um, Herb was uh, energetic, enthusiastic, 
a high and low kind of guy, either very excited or very bummed out. And he, a lot of energy. And I, and he had a very matter of fact view of comics as, as sort of pulp fiction, you know, just crank it out. He was a hack, as they said, but he, boy, could he produce. I think at one point, point he was doing three books a month. That's 60 pages of comic book art a month. Incredible. He was a fun guy. He was a real fun guy, a very good daddy and a nice, a nice husband until he wasn't. But yeah, I liked him a lot. Mm-hmm. And I loved him <laughs> until I didn't. <laughs> uh, uh, Noel, did you have a question there? Sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. And and Herb had been married once prior to. Yes, he was married to you know this it's sort of like, like the, his first serious girlfriend after high school. Yeah, and they were married for maybe seven years. One of which he spent in Vietnam, and they had one daughter who's now I don't know what she is fifty six something like that fifty five. Yeah, and she lives in Virginia. She's great. She's a wonderful wonderful woman. And then your son Alex went on to draw comics as well for a while, right? Well, he I think he did some layouts, right? Okay, I think okay. He did some layouts. Alex is more a musician than anything else. I mean, he does music. It just he cranks it out. You know how the bird sings. That's how Alex is with music. I mean, it wouldn't matter if anybody ever sold it again. He can It's like a poet, you know, one is just scribbling away. He makes a lot of music. Although he did, has had some success making music for his movies. He's done a few shorts and one feature length film. You know, that outside story. It's I'm good. I recommend it. It's a charming movie from a couple of years ago. Starring that dude who was in Atlanta, who plays his friend, whose name I can't remember, but it's got three names. <laughs> anyway, Tyree. Tyree Henry, Amelia says. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, you, so you've got three kids. Uh, yeah. Herb passed away a few years ago. You're clearly a very proud mom. Oh, I love my kids. Best. Do you have grandchildren? Yeah, one, two each. So I got six grandchildren and I got three boys, oh. three girls. It's, I mean, the nice, the nice, you know, it's a full house. So I've got, was- I've got two grandchildren and one kid here in my town. I've got two grandchildren and another kid and her cutie pie husband in on Long Island. And Alex and his wife and kids moved to Los Angeles last June. Okay. How was the pandemic on all of you? So far, so good. Amelia got, got the COVID and Sarah got the COVID. Those are my two daughters, but neither got it too badly. That's so- good. It's been a rough couple of years for people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> totally. Did you get it? Did either of you get COVID? I had COVID. I, mm-hmm. I did not get COVID. Me either, Noel. Oh, good for us. My, my husband and I in October 2020 bought a house and we got a brand new six-week-old puppy two days after moving into the house. So boxes yeah. everywhere, brand new puppy. And then the next day we both got COVID. <laughs> And it was was a terrible two weeks. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Boxes and puppy poop and COVID. But we, uh, we kept the kids safe and I, uh, I slept on the couch because I was sick and then the puppy bonded to me. And now I, I'm his little alpha. He follows me all around the house every day. (laughs) Is it, is it a mutt or a a specific breed? I wanted to get a little uh, rescue puppy, but my husband has always wanted a Pomsky. It's a little fancy designer Pomeranian Husky mix. 
Hicks. He's a he's a cute oh. guy. I'll send you a picture. Oh, would you? <laughs> so I love cute. dogs. Amelia has a up. a German Shepherd and a what is that called? Shiba, Shiba Inu, which is like oh, a little dog. They're so cool. Uh, odd dog. And I had a standard poodle named Leon until a couple of years ago. Loved Leon. Mm-mm-mm. When when our dog is has his hair shaved, he looks like a Shiba Inu. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, they're I love when and, he pops up. Yeah. You have a dog, Noel. Come on, why don't you have a dog? I, I have a dog. I have a little Pomeranian. Her name is Cleo. She's actually right here. Do you want to see her? Yes, please. I really am crazy about dogs. They're the best. I can find mine in a minute. He's running around okay, somewhere. <laughs> What's that on the wall behind you? Hello, a, baby. This is Cleo. Hi, Cleo. Hi, she's Cleo. A, she's a palm? Yeah, she's a, she's a Pomeranian. Uh, apparently, when the breeders don't like do a good job breeding, they get bigger like her. So yeah. I did her DNA because I did not believe that she was a Pomeranian. Yeah, she's twice as big as I thought a Pomeranian was. Yes, and look at her legs. Oh my God. So long. <laughs> uh, Linda, you asked about the wall behind me. I have commissioned a bunch of art of uh, original X-Men characters by different indie artists. So there's, oh, look there's Marble Girl right there. Right. They look great up there yeah, too. Yeah. I'm building a little wall. I've got uh, more to hang up. I haven't done it yet. Um, so let's get the timeline with your Marvel days down. You were hired in 1969. You left 18 months no, later. Like 67. Oh, pardon me. So 67 to 69, and you left 18 months after starting, correct? Yes. Yeah, so I left in January, February of 69, 67 to 68 to 69. Yeah, early and then, 69. And then 1972, Roy Thomas brings you back. He wants to launch a line of books by women for women. Tell me a little bit about that time and how you ended up coming back to do The Cat. Well, I was... You know, we lived in Manhattan, so that was quite convenient. And we saw all the, because of my connection with Herb, we saw all those people. So we had a social as well as a a professional relationship with them. And because I'd done those three or four little pieces, Night Nurse and the Westerns and Jean Grey, um, Roy just thought about me when he and Stan cooked up this, I got a great idea, women's live. Let's get in on that. And Black Power, let's get on that too. I know. But anyway, Black Band. So they some I guess he just approached me. Hey Linda, you know, I think Roy called me and asked I'd be interested and I'm lazy, so and I had a job, so in a way it was like, eh, do I have to do two things? But I agreed and that's how it that's how it happened. How did you come up with the cat and her name, Greer, oh, Greer Grant? Hey, I didn't come up with the cat. That was their idea. We want her to be a cat. Of course they did, right, Noel? Of course they did. Yes. It's just, I, I read an interview of yours where you mentioned that, and I just thought it was so hilarious. Of course. They wanted to be a cat. Cat woman, <laughs> cat. Meow. <laughs> Sheena, queen of the jungle. Um, but how did I? Greer. So Greer Grant was a friend of mine in the eighth and ninth grades in um, Tampa, Florida. So, and Nelson, I just pulled out of my butt and uh, I just named him. So that's how she got her name because I love that name, Greer Grant. So cool. And Dr. Tumalo was a college friend of mine and she's still my best friend in the whole wide world. (laughs) Although she changed her name when she got married, unlike me. 
And uh, yeah, that's how. How did your friends Greer Grant and Dr. Tumala react to having comic book characters named after them? <laughs> they both appreciated it because they're my friends, right? My sure. friends are going to appreciate it. Although Joanne, who changed her name, used to say, here I am, a professional therapist. And when people look up my name, this comic book comes up, you know, so <laughs> that's maybe that's why she changed her name. I don't know. <laughs> There's a thought. <laughs> No, you you did your best with the cat theme, giving Greer some uh, some crazy powers that were kind of related to a suit, but also a mysterious race of cat people. Uh, you brought in some uh, some unexpected threats from around the Marvel universe. She fought the owl and Commander Kraken and the Man Bull. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your approach to those stories. First of all, I will tell you this: uh, Roy would always say, "Why don't you have her fight this?" one next time and so he was the director of who she was gonna fight and then i would just have to read some back issues and figure out who this person was and and i can't chat i can't remember what i i can't even remember my thought processes at the time my favorite I my do. favorite is her versus manbull i think the whole thing is just it's kind of like the 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 oh it's so <laughs> The women's lib versus like the worst guy. <laughs> you got it's it. So, <laughs> it's so great. It's like a, a story. Honestly, it's a story somebody would write now. This creep is bothering us. And now I'm going to fight him. It turned out that I um, somebody from Chicago wrote and said, you know, the stockyards have been closed for 12 years. <laughs> I went, oops. <laughs> well, let's pretend it was a tourist thing. I bet you that. Uh, you used a reference when she's fighting Commander Kraken. She she uh, she calls one of her moves a Nantucket sleigh ride, and I had to look that up. Do you remember oh, that? Oh, yes, yes. I didn't remember I did that, but good for me. <laughs> good for me. What's a Nantucket you, sleigh ride, Linda? That's when uh, the whalers would go out in their little boats, and they'd stab a whale, and then he would take off and just pull that boat <laughs> off. <laughs> you know. Oh, well, they're hung, they're hung up with the rope and the harpoon. They can't, you know, they ride, They just go along with the whale till he gets tired, I guess. I was like, is this a sex thing? I don't know this term. <laughs> <laughs> we could make it one, Chad. Let's use our, put on your thinking cap. <laughs> Woo, I don't know. <laughs> Noel, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, I also noticed the Spock move in there. Were you a Star Trek fan? Yes, but Herb was even more of a Star Trek fan. Star Trek was his therapy. Every time Herb would feel sad and depressed, he'd make a little lunch and go sit in front of the TV and watch Star Trek. <laughs> now, um, now Greer, Greer Grant Nelson, who was the cat, has gone on to become Tigra, of course, whereas the cat suit has ended up getting paired with Patsy Walker from kind of the romance teen books uh, uh, has and has become Hellcat. Did you read Patsy Walker books as a kid? And were you surprised when they used the cat suit in that way in the comic books? No and yes. I didn't read it and I was somewhat like, God, guys, can't you come up with something new? But yeah, I was a little surprised. I mean, I stopped reading comics really pretty much after I left. Uh, well, especially after I had the kids. So I didn't really follow... You know what I was still reading, though? We would get free comics in, in the mail. It was part of the, one of the perks of the thing, probably for reference. So we'd get this stack about yay big of comics every month. 
And for a long time, we were getting DC Comics as well, because they all went to the same distributor, I guess. And what I really got into, um, Karen Green, what did she do over there? You know, all the, like Hellblazer and Death and all those, I can't even remember the imprint, but it was a DC imprint that was not conventional superheroes. And I loved those comics. Now, you were also involved in recruiting Barry Windsor Smith. Am I remembering that correctly? I, I think so, insofar as I encouraged him. Um, he wrote a letter, just like I did, to Marvel. And, you know, I'm, I'm an Anglophile. I lived in England as, for three years when I was a little kid. And, and I'm an English lit major, so I'm an Anglophile. So I got, and it, it was the swinging, it was right after the swinging 60s. So to get this letter from London, from this English act, um, artist, like, Stan, Stan, look at this. And his wife was English. I thought, come on, you guys. So Stan said exactly what they said to me. We can't offer you a job, but if you come to America, so damn if Stan, uh, Steve Parkhouse and Barry Windsor Smith didn't save up money and fly to America just to see if they could get a, a gig with Stan. It was amazing. And yes, yeah, so I encouraged Barry and then he slept on my living room couch for like too long. But he and Steve were camped out in our apartment when Steve, I was still Steve, uh, Steve Parkhouse. Oh, he's, sure. you know, he's a resident alien. That's Steve Parkhouse. Uh, how does it feel? What's the resonant energy as you go back? And I know this isn't the first time you've done this, but as you go back and revisit these old memories, what's, what's it like going back there or being asked these questions? It's pleasant experience. You know, I'm, I'm at an age where there's a lot of nostalgia um, just about stuff in my life. <gasps> Uh, my sister just died. And so that just stirred up a whole lot of nostalgia of our youth, you know, and sure. moving around together. I'm getting a little verklempt here. <laughs> so, no, it's pleasant to remember it. And uh, it's it's good to have positive feelings about, I don't remember the negative. I'm sure there was negative, but I don't remember it. Isn't that nice? That is a good way to, good way to look back. I Always do, uh, look on the bright side of life, Noel. You know the song, yes. Monty Python, Life of Brian. Check it out. Go for it. I do uh, therapy for a living. And one of the things I, I try to remind clients who've been through tough times is I'll use the comparison of having a baby, uh, which I have two. I have two kids. And you spend all of those hours rocking and crying and cleaning. And then suddenly the kid falls asleep and you're just, oh. and you don't remember all of the hours that you spent getting them to sleep. You just remember the relief of them sleeping. And I, I think life is often like that. I think we look back and we can remember things with bitterness, but when they're positive experiences with positive rewards, we tend to only remember the good things that took place. It's, it's a great way to be wired, isn't it? It's a mm -hmm. great way to be wired. It's absolutely true. <sighs> I mean, if women remembered a, uh, the contractions of they'd never have more than one kid. <laughs> so we just forget that almost immediately. <laughs> now, Linda, you've gone on to have a career in journalism as well, correct? Yeah. The, the first thing I did when I left Marvel was get a job in publishing for a scientific and scholarly publisher. 
called Alan R. List, named for the dude who ran it. And we did, you know, medical journals and all that stuff. So I did what they used to call mechanicals. Before there were computers, you had to do camera-ready art. You know, so I would take all these galleys that they would get from the printer and I'd have to put, you know, wax them and put them with the T-square and the triangle on a board on the... And yes, so I did that for a few years. Then computers ate my job. That was a great job, by the way, because I, by then we had moved up here up to the mid-Hudson and I would go down every Wednesday. I would drive to Manhattan, park around Gramercy Park because you could get two hours with quarters. I would go round and round until I found a parking place. Walk over to the, the publisher, hand in my work, get a new load of work and then drive back to... Anyway, yes, so I did that for a while. Then computers ate my job and I was bereft. I didn't know what to do. So for about two years of flailing, I worked as a substitute teacher. Uh, I I was a church secretary for a church that I didn't belong to. That was fun. And uh, I took the uh, post office, the, the carrier test. I did really well, but the only job they offered me was as a Christmas casual, which meant I had to work eight hours a day, but in split shifts, half an hour away. So I didn't take it. And two years later, I wrote one of my letters to the newspaper and um, put me in, coach put me in and they, they called me and they hired me. So I worked there for 20 years. Mm. Yeah, it was great. It was just great. Did you ever remarry? No, but I have a semi, well, let's not go into that. Yeah, no, (laughs) nor would I, Chad, no offense, but I love my autonomy. I got used to my autonomy pretty fast. I could do what I wanted when I wanted, and I didn't have to ask or apologize. As long as you get the occasional Nantucket sleigh ride, you're doing just fine. (laughs) (laughs) Damn straight. (laughs) Um, The the revisiting of all of this is just an absolute education. Uh, I think, uh, I think, you know, I can look back at there's that job I had right out of college or whatever, but Marvel Comics and the X-Men in particular mean something to people. And when you uh, when you represent uh, women's lib or feminism in a male dominated industry during a time when women characters and women professionals were not treated well to be the first woman writer, I think it's more impactful and more special than you realize. The, I hope so. <laughs> the, the X-Men themselves under Claremont became a, a repository for powerful female characters and women over the years. I mean, Noel could speak to this better than me as a woman, but women over the years flocked to the X-Men because they get to see powerful female voices. And speaking as a queer person, the X-Men are treated as the outcasts by society. And we get to see this story of being cast aside and finding home And so even, you know, I'm in my forties now, but I've read the books for since I was a kid. And it's always been a place where even when I was in the closet, I could go, okay, I, I can see what I'm feeling uh, channeled in these characters. Uh, And so it means something to people. I think it's a really big deal. I don't know if you wanted to add to that, Noelle. No, but very well said, very well said. And I think I responded to that as a young person too. I just, uh, I loved that 
that space was created for the outsiders. And, and I love that they talked about it and that they had that community. Yeah. And the power. Yeah. I love that they had the power also. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Especially as, as especially the X-Men grew and, you know, all of these awesome female characters got to one, be super powerful, but also be leaders and just be the everything that they could have been in the past. I actually felt myself um, when I was reading the cats, I was like, oh, I feel like this was such a, like, it could have been so great if it had been allowed to keep going, the character you made and how she was dealing with the, like, actual issues of women and what it's like to be going through that experience of trying to find a job or dealing with men and all of those things. Um, I, I found myself when I finished the series really wishing for more. <laughs> oh, that's great. We are now in 2022 and it's only in the last five years or so where we're starting to see diverse representation in the creators of comics as well. We are seeing queer people and people of color and women who are mixed into the, mixed into the, the, the industry of professionals just as a standard. Uh, we're seeing whole books who are done by all female creators. So it's not just the occasional name like Annie Nascenti or Linda Feit or Marie Severin or Wheezy uh, Simonson. It's now there's there's female names in almost yeah. every book. Uh, it, and it took this long to get there. So again, I think there's something very special about seeing names like yours represented in those early days. It's a, it's, it's a really big deal. It's a really huge <laughs> honor to meet you. Thank you. I am so gratified at how many women are in the field now. You know, I went to a maca thing about six or seven years ago and uh, in the armory, 26th Street down there. And I was so happy to see so many girls, you know, being drawing and writing and doing amazing stuff, just amazing. And so many great graphic novels out now too. I mean, just wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I interviewed uh, June Brigman a few weeks back. I don't know if you know June. Yes, I do. And I, it was, I, I was I was just commenting on how Power Pack is such incredible because you got to see a female team and you don't see that. And she's like, yeah, it was just friends making a book. You know, it was almost a shrug, <laughs> but but it still represents something. You know, it's a big yeah, deal. Yeah. How do you know June? Through Roy Thomas. That's uh, I mean, I don't we don't hang out either. But, you know, I met her through Roy a long time ago. Yeah, she's lovely. Uh, she in, lives in the South. Does she live in the South? Somewhere? She's in Atlanta. Yeah. Right. Because Roy's in South Carolina. That's yeah. right. And I interviewed Roy a few weeks back, which I mentioned, and 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 uh, Steve Englehart, uh, which we're both. Talk about a repository of everything. Roy knows everything and he remembers most of it. Mm -hmm. I was shocked at his recall. I'd be like, do you remember this one character you created in this one issue? He's like, oh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, Linda, when I think you were. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm going to ask one more thing. Um, when when you were writing for the cats um, and you're writing that series, did you think about, you know, Marvel wanted to try to diversify their audience? Were you thinking about that? Were you thinking about what um, like young girls or women, just any any female readers were thinking? Or were you just focusing on writing a good story? Well, I think. I think that 
I was thinking about a potential audience of expanding the audience for Marvel into more females reading it more, you know, and, uh, but I was mostly writing it for myself. What would I like to read? You know, because I'm a woman, so you know, like that. (laughs) Yes, you're your audience. Yeah. And I think that that comes through in that it's a, you know, when, especially back then when male writers were writing female characters, you can tell. And in that character, if I didn't even know that you were the one writing it, there's just a difference with her character. Mm. Oh, good. So I wondered if that just came from you being a woman and writing a story about a woman, so you treat her like a person, or if it was kind of more intentional. Well, plus that whole thing was very elevated at the time, that like pushing, come on, pushing, pushing women, feminism and pushing and like, come on, no fair, no fair. Yeah. So (laughs) it was a bit of a cheesy treatment, but it was really an issue and a powerful issue and still is baby. Oh yeah. The telephone. Well, Linda, I think you are just wonderful. And rarely do I feel so at ease with someone so quickly. You're funny. And come on out, Chad. Come to New York. I'd love to meet you in real life. <laughs> I would love that. My sister and her wife live in eastern Massachusetts. So I try to make a trip out east once a year. Maybe I'll reach okay. out if we make it. To I'd love New York. to see you. You can see all my my art and my mess, okay? That yeah. sounds delightful. Uh, do you have any parting words for us today? I'm sorry about the answering machine talking while we say no, but thank you. I enjoyed this 10 times more than I expected. I've had a really good time, Noel. Great to meet you. You can come to New York too. The sticks oh. live in the, the boondocks of New York, you know? Yeah. That's the awesome. best part of New York. Thanks. For, I, I enjoyed it. And you're very smart. You're both very, very smart. I like smart <laughs> and I like entertaining. They're my favorite things. Uh, <laughs> Uh, thank you, thank you for your valuable time. We'll let you get back to board games and taxes. Thank but, you, darling. Uh, but I look Bye, forward Noel. to seeing you in touch. Bye, Chad. Bye. Bye, people. Bye, Linda. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. I'm pouring a lot of time, labor, and love into this podcast, and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here, and I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Gray Malkin Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Gray Malkin Lane can be found on Twitter at Gray Malkin P, P like podcast, and on Instagram under Gray Malkin Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. Please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement on Patreon. We'll see you back here next episode on Gray Malkin Lane.